Welcome to Indie Beauty Radio with your host, Rachel Whitaker, founder of the Indie Beauty Delivers community. Oh, good afternoon. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition, or this week's edition, I should say, of Indie Beauty TV. And it's going to be so exciting today. I'm really, really excited. Um, you can see I'm not on my own. We've Hi, guys. <laughs> joining us this afternoon, which is awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it's great. And the wonders of modern technology, I'm saying that whilst trying to check that we are actually going live. Um, but the wonders of uh, modern technology mean that we're not even in the same place, guys. Gemma's down in London, I'm up in Nottingham. Um, but you know, I do my best every month to bring you a guest on Indie Beauty TV. Um, and I thought, because it was the beginning of the year, that it would be really, really good, because I know many of you are considering retail as one of the options and strategies for you this year. So what better a guest to get on to talk to you about retail, if that is something you're aiming for, than Gemma. So, um, Gemma, will you introduce yourself? Of course. You, but just so that we know who you are, what you do, and why you're here, that would be amazing. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you for having me. And the sun is shining, so we're ready to have a good session. Um, yeah, so basically, I have worked in beauty for about the past 12 years, and about 10 of those years were in retail, so I used to be a buyer. So don't judge me for that, guys. It just means I can share a lot of my knowledge with you. Um, so most of that was sort of in um, one of the main high street retailers of the UK. So I've worked across many categories. So the more kind of commoditized categories like um, hair, body care, oral care, baby, feminine care as well. Um, and then towards the kind of second half of my career, I was more in the beauty focused categories. So skincare, cosmetics, fragrance. Um, so that was that was an amazing career. Gave me a real, obviously, a, a massively thorough understanding of how the industry works and everything. Um, and then at the end of 2017, I kind of was, you know, really aware of what was going on in the indie beauty scene and basically wanted to get involved. So I left my corporate job, which a lot of my friends are like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> same thing. Um, exactly. And I basically set up my own um, business. So that's called Lumi Consultancy. So that's how Rachel and I know each other. Um, and basically, I work with indie beauty brands and I help them with their sales strategy or I help them break into new markets or help them get into retailers within the UK. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've been doing that for about 18 months now. And that's why I'm here today. Oh, that's brilliant. And you work with UK brands and international brands who want to break into the UK market? Yeah, work with everyone. So hopefully this will be great advice for everyone. Yes, it will. <laughs> we have got um, so many questions came in. We so, have got a lot, haven't we? Um, so we are going to get straight into it. I can yeah. Steph is with us, which is wonderful, because she's put, hello, so excited for this. So thanks, Steph. Um, Please ask any questions while we're broadcasting. That's fine. Uh, yeah. I'll pick them up and I'll yeah. try and get uh, them answered. If you're watching this on Catch Up, then still put your questions in or any of your comments because we would still love to hear your feedback. On what yeah, definitely. And I know a lot of you will be watching on Catch Up. Um, if it's something specific, tag us in and then we know it's there because um, we, we're expecting quite a lot of people to, uh, to watch on catch-up and come back to us on stuff. So tag us in, let us know that you're, what you've watched it and what you think about it. That would be really, really awesome. And if you're joining in, oh, here's Stella. Hey, Stella. Oh, lovely to see you. Right, okay, so I'm going to get cracking, because like I said, okay. we, Let's do it. 
skin. So, whew, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> so, a lot of people, I've had the same question come in from quite a lot of people, is that um, really what is it that, and I'm, I'm going to start really broad, what is it that helps a brand stand out when they're trying to approach a retailer? What is it that retailers are really looking for? Now, this is obviously quite a broad question, and it really depends on which retailers we're talking about and which brands. But you're right, you know, that was kind of a real common question across a lot of different people. Um, I say the main thing that you need to do is just be really clear about which retailers you want to target and why. Because for a brand to stand out, they need to um, be speaking to the right kind of retailers for their specific brand. So, you know, a lot of brands come to me and say, oh, I want to be in Harrods. But actually, that might be right for one brand, but it might be completely wrong for another brand. So in terms of standing out to specific retailers, I think it's knowing your own brand well. So what your USP is, what makes you unique, what makes you special. Knowing who your target consumer is. So um, I don't know whether people have got like, customer avatars or, you know, who they're kind of... Um, an ideal profile of their ideal consumer and then matching that up to say well you know this is my ideal consumer this is my USP of my brand and actually that's why I should um, fit within this specific retailer um, so that's kind of like the basics of how they can stand out as in first of all they need to just make sure that they're targeting the right retailer yeah and then in terms of standing out i know it sounds obvious it does sound obvious but no but it, it, do, it doesn't because i often get people say oh you know i'd really love to be in selfridges and i think to myself i'm not sure selfridges is right because there's the kudos of the name sometimes yes i can't remember who it was i heard speaking once but they were saying they were they were a buyer it might have been a beauty exchange at some point and, and their, their biggest thing was that if you pitch to a to the wrong retailer if you picture a retailer that's not for your brand yeah it's an instant it's an instant no-no and and, re, and sort of buyers move around from companies yeah quite, exactly get that bit right picture. exactly that's kind of like the foundation of knowing you know knowing your brand really well knowing your target consumer really well and therefore from that defining a list of target retailers that are appropriate for you and your target audience so that's kind of the first thing. Where can you find information that would help to help you to? So, say you think, oh, I think maybe I'm kind of like a Debenhams brand, or maybe yeah. I'm a brand. Where can brands be looking to find the information that will help them to kind of go, yes, I definitely am. Yeah. So I think first of all, it's about knowing your own brand and your own customer. So in terms of insight that you might have on your own customer, um, what data do you have access to? Kind of um, Google Analytics, the back end of Instagram, um, and loads of great resources uh, like so. There's um, something called like Mintel reports, which have like a market report. And you can actually get those for free at think, places like the National Library, which is great. Um, so really trying to use all of these resources to build up like your customer profile and then kind of cross-referencing that against different retailers. So I think some of it is probably anecdotal, you know, you would probably in your head kind of know the difference between the Debenhams versus the Selfridges, you know, they're both department stores, but you already have the idea that um, one might be more luxury from a price point perspective. Um, but also, you know, go on their websites. A lot of them will have their mission on there. 
they'll have on there what their values are, what they want to stand for. They might have specific things that they are want to champion in sustainability. So if that's something that rings true with your brand, that you've got sustainable packaging or you know ingredients sourced in a specific way, try and really highlight the synergies between what you stand for and actually what that retailer's mission is. Um, because the more you can do to say we've got a lot of crossover essentially and um, the easier it is like the less friction there is so you know you'll kind of be music to the to the buyers ears when you're presenting to them yeah and it's amazing how much uh is just on google guys <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah i i did it i did something with my rock stars uh, last year and we were looking at different retailers and i think i put into google demographic of john lewis and i got this like awesome kind of uh, infographic which i was just able to download yeah and there's a place actually called um Lightshare, which has really good slides like that in. Um, yeah. so and, and i think one, one way of doing it maybe slightly more scientifically so if you had your target retailer lined up um so say if we're looking at a category like skincare, so you had a moisturizer, for example, which I'm sure loads of rock stars all do skincare. Um, so if you wanted to be in a specific retailer, one of the ways that you can look at whether you that's appropriate for you is looking at what their entry and exit price points are. That's basically saying, um, you know, what's the, the lowest price item they do within that category and what's the highest price. Because actually sometimes straight away that will already kind of discount that retailer for you um kind of one way or the other um so the brand i used to work for was actually super drugs so for anyone that's not in the uk that's uh, more of a mass drugstore um so when i was on the cosmetics category for example um you know we would have a price a top price point on something like foundation of about 15 pounds so if someone was presenting a luxury brand to me um, even if I liked it, it wouldn't necessarily be right for my customer. It would be too much of a stretch for them, in which case it kind of makes it pointless for both the brand and the retailer to not progress. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. I'm not, yes, I've not heard that one before. That's, that's, that's a really, yeah, that's a really, really good one. Good. I'd like to share some knowledge, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, and I can see Nicholas said hi. And anybody else who's joining us, say hi in the chat box because it's really nice to know who's there. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's that's really really cool so okay so the most important thing then is to just do your homework and yes i am really researching who you kind of go yeah. to be definitely um, and so it's we, a great investment of your time as well you know, i know a lot of people watching it like but i finally got the i just want to get out like as many retailers as possible but I think certainly for the larger retailers that are more kind of like a national retailer, it does pay to kind of um, do your homework and prepare thoroughly, basically. Yeah, it does, because I think you, you do, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say you only get one shot. I'm sure there are, you know, there, you do you do get more than one shot. Sometimes it's just not the right time and the yeah. return to you as trends change. But it is really important to, to get it right. First. Yeah. And especially if you've spent all of this time and energy and financial investment into creating a brand that you love and you really believe in, you know, you want to do it justice and you don't want to miss the opportunity. It's so hard to get time in with buyers that you, you just want to nail it, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So we've matched ourselves up quite nicely, our customer avatars with the kind of demographics that do the shops. We know which retailers we want to target. Yeah. What do we... 
we need to put in front of that buyer? How do we get in front of that buyer? What do we need to show them to, to help really stand out? Yeah, so I think the first thing is actually trying to get to meet them physically. Um, and this is a challenging part of the process, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, so I think just for context, like, you know, buyers are really busy and yeah, you know, everyone's busy, but buyers are really busy. Um, and I can say that from experience. Um, they've got a lot of deadlines kind of being thrown at them and then they'll get last minute things dropped on them. And, you know, in the last job I was in, I probably got anywhere between 200 to 300 emails a day so it's literally insane um so you need to think about how you can grab that buyer's attention and stand out from the crowd even just actually to get to the point of them reading your email is a strategic piece of work in itself yeah um so i think again it's coming back to like what you're what's special about your brand and what's special about you and what you're going to offer them so i'd always um, tell brands to kind of open their emails with something called a power statement. So have you got a quote, a really nice quote from a piece of press you've had? Do you have a statistic from your website or from a different retailer about how fast your brand is selling? Or do you have a really new innovative skincare ingredient that, you know, that's hot? So you know CBD's hot right now. Um, are you going to be like one of the first ones to bring it to the UK? So to open your kind of email with that, and the body of the email, you kind of just need to get straight to the point. So I'd say, you know, maybe three bullet points of like, um, this is the brand, this is what we stand for, and this is why I think it's right for your uh, customer. And, and you know, as such, I really value your time. I'd love to come in and present it to you. Um, and also simultaneously send a beautiful box of samples in. Um, you know, I think often the product speaks for itself. So, you know, an email is just black and white words and they get loads of those every day. But actually, the products, they will definitely look at them and try them. And I think if it's something that they like, they would um, then connect that with the email and come back to you. Yeah, okay. So so an email is is, is a good way in. But yeah. I think what you're saying is don't, uh, don't try and deliver too much information on that first email. What you're trying to do yeah. is pay attention and show that you, you're a, a brand worth. Yeah. yeah, and I think you can attach, I think you can attach some information as in like, um, like a mini overview. Um, but I definitely think the actual content of the, the written part of the email needs to be very clear and concise. Um, so cut out the waffle. If you're not sure, you know, send it to someone that you trust. Send it to me or Rachel, and we will be brutally honest. Um, waffle removers. We can yes. do that. <laughs> I will sniff out the waffle and I will extract it. <laughs> and I guess the other thing that you said there, which is really interesting, is really about um, potentially relevance. So I guess buyers are always looking for brands that are very relevant to what's happening with regards to trends. And that's yes. skincare, but it could also be trends to do with maybe zero waste packaging and things like that as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Um, I think there was a question actually to say, do they only look for trend products? And obviously it's hard to say based on the retailer. I'd say they don't only look for trend products but i think if you do have something that does um happen to be on trend whether that's intentional or accidental um that's you know just an easy hook to kind of gain their attention because it might be the buzzword that everyone in the industry is talking about yeah yeah okay so we've so so we've 
found our right retailers. We put in this like waffle-free, amazingly relevant email. Yeah. And we sent some like really great samples. Packaged beautifully. Packaged beautifully, full size, so that they get like loads of opportunities. Yeah, I think as much as you can, you need to just show off your product in the best light. So if you can, if you've got the budget to, you know, I think investing into a buying relationship is probably one of the best ways you can invest your marketing budget. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I can just see Melissa's joined us. Hi, Melissa. I hope you're okay. Hi, Melissa. Um, great. Okay, so. There are two scenarios, I guess, that follow on from that. Then uh, the first one is that um, first one is the great one, and yeah. you communication back from the buyer, and they uh, invite you to come in and meet them. Yes, and loads of questions we got on this particular subject. Yeah, got loads on that one. <laughs> Absolutely loads, and all were basically about what the heck do we prepare in advance, and what can we expect on the actual day so let's do the, the advanced bit first yeah so you do need to prepare a pitch deck so what I'd say is just to kind of clarify for anyone that's just joined or whatever we are talking more about national retailers where it would be a centralized buying office um, so you wouldn't necessarily need to go to this level of preparation for maybe like a local store that is like just an independent retailer um, because I think often with them you can just take a simple line sheet with some gorgeous photos on and just the commercials so the cost price the RRP and the MOQ so that that's kind of just for the indie retailers I think for like the national retailers that we're talking about so where they've got a centralized buying team um, what you would need to prepare would be a pitch deck. So I'd say it needs to be anywhere between about 12 and 15 pages long. Resist the temptation to, do, again, information overload. You, you just need to identify the really important parts of um, the brand story that you want to communicate to them, but make sure you do it in a really clear and concise way. Um, so you'd want to open up the start of the pitch deck at the beginning to really give them a bit of insight into the brand. So what's your strategy? What do you stand for? What are your values? So it might be something around, you know, one of our values is integrity and transparency. And what does that mean? They're buzzwords or whatever. But, it, you know, it might mean as a result of that, we source our ingredients in this way or we only use recycled packaging or we give 5% of our profits to this charity that links into our kind of reason. Um, so, yeah, so start off with that. Give them a bit of insight into, like, what your brand strategy is and what you're trying to achieve. So, you know, why have you started this brand? Who are you trying to target? Who's your target consumer? Um, and I guess if you've got any evidence to kind of back that up, it's always great to try and be as, you know, to try and quantify and to try and be as scientific as possible. So... I used to get it a lot in my old job um, where I'd have fans come in and they'd say, oh, you know, we're targeting millennial females, which is great because that's the kind of core consumer that I had at my old retailer. But actually, when you looked at the brand, there was a real disconnect between that um, and they weren't necessarily actually targeting that in the way that the brand was packaged or price position and everything like that. So I think as much as you can, um, try and actually prove some of the points that you're talking about. So, you know, linking back to what we were talking about before, you know, even on the back of Instagram, it gives you a breakdown of your different age groups and the diff different demographics. So it's great if you can say, I'm targeting millennial females and I know that actually 91% of my audience on Instagram are female and actually 
um, 75% of them are in that 25 to 34 age bracket or whatever it might be. And you don't necessarily have to write all of this information down. I think if you've got to the stage of pitching it, it's always better to almost have less information actually on the presentation and actually give them a lot of it verbally to really engage and, and entice them into like listening to you. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the first bit around, you know, our brand story, our reason for existing and, and I guess like, you know, what is your USP, what makes you unique and special. And then from that, sorry, do you want to say something? Well, yeah, um, another one, you know, Gemma and I are always at events. This is where we love events. Yeah. I hope to see some of you more this year. Yeah. I feel like I'm always listening to things, but I remember one of the things that, that came out really strongly at something I went to um, was about the fact that if you get to meet a retailer um, at a pitch, it, 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 is, it is kind of a, it, it's a conversation. It's not really a pitch. You shouldn't be sort of standing there just kind of bombarding them with things. You should be sort of having a conversation. So the pitch yeah. is there to kind of guide your conversation. Exactly. To engage and for them to ask you questions and then to ask yeah and also pick up on the cues from your audience who you're presenting to you know you'll be able to tell from their body language and if they're asking any questions whether they want to slow down and really like focus in on that value that you just talked about or if they're kind of like flipping through it and looking at the watch then you know you need to pick up the tempo a bit um and adjust accordingly Pardon. that's a pretty obvious cue isn't it yeah, they're like, oh my god, seriously. <laughs> but you know, things like that happen actually because as buyers, as I mentioned, they are really busy. So I was guilty of it myself. But I might have put an hour meeting in with someone, but my previous meeting before may have run over for half an hour. You know, if you're with your boss and you're presenting like this massive strategy, something that you may not be able to leave the room for. So where you think you've got an hour, you actually might only get 20 minutes with the buyer and you also need to be prepared for that. So um, don't just rely on filling that whole hour with the luxury of what you're going to be going through. I think you need to make sure that you're also adaptable in case um, you do have less time or even more time. You never know. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, so it is important to have some detail in there. Sort of, do, do we need to be do we need to be delivering in that pitch deck evidence of um, sales? And do we need to be delivering evidence of sort of uh, social engagement and social traction? Yeah, I think if you've got any um, evidence of anything that's positive, so it might be some social media uh, stats or um, it might be some press that you've had, um, particularly if there's any good quotes or any good reviews. Um, anything that you've got like that, I think would be great to include. But I also don't want to put off someone that's just you know, completely at the start of the journey and they don't necessarily have any of that information um, because that isn't, you know, that isn't the be-all and end-all, essentially. Um, I think retailers are just looking for something that they know will work in their stores and, and really talk to their consumer. Um, so, yeah, so after you kind of do that first bit around this is the brand story and if you do have any amazing um, kind of pieces of press or anything, because that would just add validation to the fact that it's a great brand. Um, you then want to go into the fun bit, which is all around the product. So you want to kind of give them some information about what your brand is, like, you know, what the actual products are, you know, how they perform, why they're special, that sort of thing. 
Um, so I'd always say from an actual, from the presentation that you take in, it depends how big your range is. Like if you've only got a couple of products, I'd say maybe do a slide per product and you can list out a few of them. If you say got a range of like 10 products or over, really you don't want to be going through 10 slides because you know, you want to leave a real positive impression on the fire and you want the meeting to have good energy and flow really well. So you don't want to kind of drag them through another page. All right, oh, and here's our serum. Oh, and here's our like moisturizer serum and here's our clarifying serum. Blah, 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 blah. So um, I'd say if you do have a, um, a larger range than a couple of products, maybe group them into like appropriate subcategories or different formats or whatever is a sensible way of grouping it for your brand. Um, and at this stage, I'd also definitely take some samples to meet some of you as well. And I'd get the samples out of this stage. So as you're talking through your amazing serum that's got an amazing texture, you can actually get them to try it and that, you know, um, smell it and engage with the product and whatever you can. Because as I said, I think really the product will do a lot of the talking for you. And it's just a good conversation starter as well. Really kind of help you feel more relaxed if you're a bit worried. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I know, I can believe that. And then I was just thinking, actually, um, that it's the right time to ask another question that came up, because you yeah. have mentioned it. One of the questions that came in was around this fact that there are, um, you know, are retailers focused on brands that can offer a range of products? Yeah. Or will they consider a brand which is a one product kind of, you know, setup? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, that was Gabrielle, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Basically, it really depends on the retailer. Um, and I know I've prob I'm probably going to say this to all the questions today, but it really does depend on the retailer. I'd say generally as a rule of thumb, so there's kind of, um, you have your physical retailers, so those that have physical locations, so we'd call those bricks and mortar stores. And then you have online retailers, and obviously some of them have a combination of both. Um I think for, for an online retailer, they can essentially take anything as small as a one product range. Um, and the main reason why they can versus a physical retailer is that some physical retailers obviously lay out, so it's called merchandising. So they will have specific layouts in their store and they might say, you know, the, the minimum display will give you might be like a two foot wide shelf, which would equate to maybe six to eight products. Um, so they would, a lot of physical retailers are probably more um, prescriptive about kind of a minimum size of the range, but equally that does vary. So I think maybe more like the, the mainstream retailers, so thinking in the UK, people like Boots or Superdrug, they would be really prescriptive about having like at least that many products. Whereas if you went to a department store, they might have a zone or, you know, even somewhere like Urban Outfitters or Topshop, like some of the more fashion retailers. Um, they often have zones that are just like different brands all bunched in together and they might just have a slot per brand. So I think the answer is it just varies by retailer. So don't be worried if you have only got one product. There's definitely... Now, I'm hoping, are you there, Gemma? Yeah, can you still hear me? 
Yeah, it just froze for a second. <laughs> yeah. I know, I could just see you nodding. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we were joking beforehand, and I was saying, I've never managed to do one of these C-Labs without there being some technical difficulty. Perhaps this will be the first one I'll do that will go fine, and then that happens. Um, but that's okay. Um, no, because it's quite interesting. So I think one of the things that people can do with that is when you've worked out which other retailers you'd like to target and which are the retailers that you know you would work well with, you yeah. can go to their stores, their physical stores, and you can yeah. see how they've got brands in there who yeah. have. And I'd say with all of these points we go through, you know, if you want to make a list of all the things that you want to go through and go and visit these target stores. So if you've got a list of five or ten different retailers you want to be in. You need to go to each of them and have a look at all these different considerations and it might then sway your decision and some of them might come off the list and then you know others might go higher up in your list or kind of change in the priority order and stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating behind the scenes of, of larger retailers. Um, Gemma, you've worked it from a buyer's point of view, I've worked it from a logistics point of view. Yeah. They plan out their stores. It's yeah. It's a millimetre, isn't it? They have yeah. so every single millimetre has to generate profit. So they exactly. plan every single store. I used to refit all the Boots um, self-selection cosmetics. Oh, wow. What a big project. <laughs> the details. Yeah, the details. And each store had its own individual planogram. Yeah. My God, somebody's sitting in the room making all these. Yeah. So in those bigger stores. They often want you to have a bit of a larger range because they want you to Yeah, and to be honest, that is often just for operational issues for them. It's for operational reasons. The only yeah. thing I would say, actually, that I didn't mention is even if you have only got one product, you know, if you know that you've got um, so MPD, new product development, if you know that you've got MPD in the pipeline or that you've got stuff that you could possibly um, start producing within a certain time frame, you know, still go and speak to those retailers that you think might want a larger range because you could say, you know, this is where we are now, but actually this is what's coming. Because a lot of retailers, particularly the physical ones, will work on really long lead times in terms of their decision making, um, which kind of links back to what you're saying about planograms and stuff. So one of the, I think uh, it was Melissa mentioned about how much time the buyers give a brand to gather retail sales data. Sorry if I'm just skipping ahead here. Um, <laughs> just kind of fits really nicely, actually. So basically, if a retailer introduces a new brand, they will start looking at the sales performance pretty much straight away. So they should be looking at it from week one. But that isn't to say, you know, often retailers know that a brand will have a little bit of a bedding in period. Um, whilst like the marketing kicking in and the awareness. Um, so they will expect that to kind of build and grow. Um, but they have specific opportunities throughout the year where they can introduce or remove products. So they're called range reviews. Um, so basically what that means is if they've got a range of maybe like 500 products, they will analyze all of the sales data and they will then say, actually, this is my top, this is my bottom 20% of products. I'm going to delist those or discontinue them. Um, and that's the space that I'm then going to use for some introducing some of these new products. So basically, you also need to remember that obviously this is all about how to impress retailers in the first place. But if you do secure a listing with a retailer, that's not, yes, game over, amazing, I've won. It's kind of like, no, that's the start of the journey. Um, and, you know, people always say what's like one of the biggest pieces of advice you could give to indie brands. And I think this would be it. Like, 
if you get into a retailer, it's your responsibility to then make sure that they perform and you're being proactive and you're trying to drive as much sales as you can through that retailer because ultimately if they do then analyze the sales again in say six months later, um, you don't want to be in that bottom bracket of brands that are underperforming because they'll just take you back out again. Um, and a lot of the retailers might even charge you for that privilege in terms of they'll want you to either take the stock back or they'll want some clearance funding. Um, so, so yeah, I think, um, not trying to scare anyone here, but it's just about, you know, making sure that you are targeting the right retailers that you know will perform because actually if you get into those retailers, you do need and want them to perform as well um, as they do with you. And just saying on that point, because I think that's really, really interesting. How do how do you proactively, as as a brand, work with a retailer? As you as you, you know, you get that listing, you get in those stores. Yeah. You know what can you do? What you or what should you be doing to keep that relationship going? And yeah. All the time. Yeah. So I think before you even get listed in the retailer or before you've even pitched to them again on this comp shop that you can do beforehand go into retailers and look at all of the different things that they might have available for you so um they might have specific zones so we would call them like secondary sites in store and um, so basically if you're in a skincare aisle they might actually have brands featured outside of that aisle as well on particular particular promotions or you know featured um themes of the month or something like that so that's something that would definitely help increase your sales and um, have a look at what marketing things that they can do from you know in-house marketing so what do they have from a social media perspective do they send newsletters and emails to their uh, customer base um do they have loyalty cards um you know what opportunities do they have that you want to get involved in on their website do they have banners that are sponsored by different brands um you know there's loads of different things that each retailer will have almost like a different roster of opportunities that you can be involved in um probably more on the luxury side you know uh, places like space and kale cult beauty they also will do sampling um, so if you spend money or, you know, people buy things, um, they'll get sent little samples with whatever they bought. You know, I think sampling is a great way of driving your brand, particularly if you're a new brand, because a lot of it is around discovery and actually trying to drive that awareness. Um, so that's everything with that. But then I think touching on what you just said before, a big part of helping to make sure that it's a successful um new retailer that you take on is around the relationship so as much as you can really try and build a strong relationship with the buyer the buying assistant they're probably the most important person in the whole business because they will keep the category running um think outside of the box as well so try and build relationships with the marketing teams with the supply chain and logistics team all these people um will help make your life a lot easier if you've got a good relationship with them and, you know, you can ask them, you know, we were thinking of doing these pieces of marketing. What do you think would work best for our brand? Because they know the category. Um, and if you've got that great relationship with them, they'll want to see you succeed. So, you know, they don't want to introduce a brand and for it not to be successful because ultimately that's basically wasting their space as well. Yeah. Um, so they will help guide you as well. Oh, no, I think that's great. I mean, I'm working with um, uh, a brand at the moment and they work with quite a lot of online retailers. Yeah, um, a really exciting launch of a new range, uh, and they've given it um, 
to one of those online retailers exclusively for two weeks. Oh, love that little exclusive word. Yeah, where you can kind of drive your your you know your sales if you're if you're selling in multiple places, you could pack, and you want to focus in on developing a relationship with one particular retailer. That could be a way of, of doing it, I guess. Absolutely. But you, you know better than me on this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but that's brilliant, right? Oh my god, there's so many. I I, I keep coming up with questions, and then <laughs> we've got questions. Nancy O'Reilly, I have seen your question in the comments. I am going to ask that question shortly. So thank you very much for posting it. Um, I will get it. I will get it answered. I'm not ignoring you. Um, okay, let's just talk a little bit about packaging, uh, Gemma, because that was a question that came up, um, and it was yeah. really around, you know, what sort of packaging do retailers like to have? Yeah. So, unfortunately, I'm going to say this depends on the retailer again. Um, it really does depend on like who you're trying to target so in terms of like the packaging style the actual design i think it's just making sure that that is true to who your target customer is and is that appropriate to what you know what they like visually and does it have all of the information on i think there are some operational considerations with packaging so um Often I see with smaller indie brands, things like barcodes um, are something that can be easily left off. And things like that are, you know, they are necessary for national retailers. So make sure you have that on any of the kind of um, legal information that you need on there, obviously. Um, but also have a think about if it is going into like a physical retailer, so where it's an in-store environment, have a think about the difference between if it's a self-service environment versus it being... Um, somewhere that's staffed with someone to explain it and how does that affect the packaging that you choose in terms of can you see the product um, or do you want the customer to be able to um, open it does it do you need it to be tamper proof um, a lot of these considerations that you you know you just don't have to think about if it's online only um, think about the kind of retail environment that you're going to be in physically um, and what measures you might need to take to and make it shop proof essentially it's really interesting because i've spent my life uh well 16 years in beauty moving products so touching individual products in a warehouse environment and then taking it out to retailers mm -hmm. and one of the things that i just remember distinctly is when you're going to have your product on a shelf in a retailer just test the material that your boxes are yeah made. Yeah, you can get some beautiful packaging which you think is lovely, but the moment someone touches it, particularly if they've just eaten a sandwich or yeah. leaves a really awful mark, um, so just think about that. I mean, that's the thing when it comes to retail. It's just how how customer friendly is it, and how good is it going to look at the end of the day when twenty people have walked past yeah. and put it back down again. Exactly, that's absolutely yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and uh, I remember packing for um for, I packing for the body shop actually, and they have those. If I've got one somewhere, well, those aluminium tubes of. Uh, oh yeah. And uh, they had a bit of a bad batch once, and every time you touched it, it just it just crumpled, and it was like, how do you remove these things through? It was just a nightmare. So yeah, think hard about how it how it looks when it's been touched. Yeah. Um, so yeah, okie dokies. Let's have a look. Steph, I can see your question as well, darling, and I'm going to get out. That is coming up very, very soon. So, um, so yeah, I'll answer that one as well. The only thing that we kind of didn't finish off, actually, so we were talking about what should you include in the retail pitch deck. So we said, 
the first part was around the brand and you know why you exist and all of your brand values and everything the second part was the products itself the third part and this is really important and why you do need to do that comp shop is how you'll bring it to life in that specific retailer so you want to go in with a bit of a plan around you know this is my marketing plan this is how it would look in store or online um, and this is a bespoke plan just for you retailer a um and you'd want to flex that part of the presentation so if you were presenting to harrods you would actually then want to change that when you went what went to present to selfridges to just show them and demonstrate that you've really given it that bespoke treatment for their specific store so you know their specific loyalty card and all of the things that would appeal to their specific customer and that, that, that's it on, that's it on the pitch deck close yeah. that one <laughs> I guess again, you can go into those stores to research what other brands are doing and you can see the sorts of things that Selfridges like to do with brands, like Harris likes to do with brands, that Debenhams do with brands, and you, so that will help you to kind of maybe tweak the way that you're going. Your that. Um, golly, right, okay. You check the question list too, Gemma, and then we'll, then we'll make sure we're not missing anybody. Um, how important is social media buzz? I think we, can, we better deal with that. Yeah, um, so it's very important. Um, I wouldn't worry about necessarily the number of followers that you've got, but absolutely no, there's no room in this day and age for an Instagram page that look on point, um, on brand, really kind of rings true with your brand colours, you know, your brand colours, all that sort of thing. Um, I think basically anything like social media is just about giving the buyer confidence that you're going to be able to generate awareness and therefore put it into their store. So obviously the more active and the more you have in terms of the follower base, the better. Um, but there isn't kind of a hard or fast rule in terms of the number of followers. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes absolute that makes absolute sense. And I think that is a really key thing to remember that when you are trying to work with retailers, they, they want to stop brands that will bring people into their store. Yeah. Um, they're looking for a uniqueness in you that brings people in that perhaps, perhaps they normally come into their store or yeah. hopefully when they're in that store, you'll, they'll buy your stuff and they'll buy other stuff that's in there. So yeah. um, I think there was a question on like what kind of marketing works best new brands yeah. launching into retailers. And I think, again, it depends on what the objective is. So, you know, is it to drive awareness and traffic? So that would be more kind of like external marketing that you do. So things like Facebook and Instagram ads um, or sampling, like yeah, and, and tagging it to that specific store. You know, hey, guys, we've just launched a today. Um, go and visit them, um, that kind of thing. If you're already in a retailer and it's about driving sales, obviously you do want to kind of publicise things externally as well, but also then the retailer's own marketing initiative they've got. So some of the things that we've talked about before in terms of like, you know, what CRM or email campaigns they have, um, are there any promotions that you can get involved in? Um, can you do any sampling or can you do like, um, you know, even something like a spec threshold, like spend over £50 on Brand X and get free GWP, which means a gift of purchase. So having things like that in your toolkit that you can offer retailers. Excellent, excellent. I'm just, I was just doing a quick rundown of questions. And actually, we've answered quite a lot of them. I'm really pleased. So I'm looking at, I'm conscious of the timer as well. So um, what else have we got here that I think is a really, really important one? 
um, to go through. Um, we need to touch on it, Gemma. We said it was the one that we that we probably least wanted to answer, but let's just do shelf life because we have got the questions that have come in about shelf life and what retailers are expecting from us. Yeah, and this is a really tough one. Um, and I know probably a lot of people watching this will be possibly self-formulating and making their own products at home. And this is a tough question to answer. Um, most national retailers that are of a quite a large scale would want a decent shelf life of probably at least two years. Um, but that being said, it does vary by each individual retailer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, like smaller retailers, I think things like that aren't as much of an issue. But basically, just to explain it, a lot of the larger retailers want it because... Um, say Boots, for example, has got like nearly 2,000 stores. If they start buying a product in and sending it out to each of those stores, they will all perform at different sales rates. So one of them might sell one of your products once a week, but some of them might sell it only like once every 10 weeks. Um, so that's kind of the reason that bigger retailers are more demanding in terms of shelf life. But there isn't necessarily a set rule. Um, I'd say it probably needs to be at least two years minimum if it's if it's a big retailer. Yeah, no, and from certainly from a logistics point of view and from the side of the business that, that I kind of grew up in, um, we, you have to, when you deliver into these retailers, you have to document on your paperwork your expiry dates. And yeah. So they are rigorously checked. Yeah, and retailers will refuse deliveries as well if it doesn't meet their criteria. They just won't book the stock in and take responsibility for it, uh, essentially. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. So, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> You're asking, it's really, really good. So, um, what are, again, there's lots of questions on this. We, we've touched we've touched on it um, a little bit, but I'm just going to make us go back to it and look at it and, and just be really concise about it. Yeah. What that jumps out at buyers when brands approach them? What are those key things, those key little things that jump out and make them catch their attention? I think it's any proven data that you've got. So that's in the form of um, social media reviews, customer reviews, um, press or PR that you've got, any kind of sales related data. So it might be that you're already in a different retailer and anything that you've got around that, like, you know, when we launched, we started to do a came in the top 10 of their moisturizers or whatever um so something that gives them external validation that it's not just you saying i've got this great brand and i love it actually it's um kind of been verified and authenticated by someone apart from you um obviously the products have to be amazing themselves and as much as you can do try and get the products into the hand as soon as possible so you know send them samples and um, make sure that they're obviously packaged amazingly um, and then obviously the main point we've really touched around throughout the whole thing is just making sure that you're targeting the retailers that have your ideal customer in there so there's a genuine true overlap um, and that's that's the toughest one because actually that requires um, a bit of perspective and being quite objective so get some trusted advisors, get some people in the industry and just say, you know, actually, these are the five retailers that I really want to pitch into and this is the reason why. Do you think that that makes sense to you? And, you know, do you understand my reasons why? And ask them to be honest with you. Um, I think that's the main thing, really. 
my rock, anybody who's been through my Rockstars Mentor Programme will be, will be laughing at the moment because I do a big piece. We do a big piece on understanding who your customer is. Yeah. We're all school teacher about it and naggy and it's like you need to do this you need to do this in so much depth because everything you do from social media to retail is everything depends on getting this bit right yeah so i'm glad that you're backing me up on that excellent and she hasn't paid me to say that i promise <laughs> <laughs> so marketing costs this is the question i get asked loads about uh, but i've never worked on your side of retail so when you work with some of the bigger retailers yeah Right, there is an expectation that you will contribute as a brand to your yeah. marketing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this isn't one that you can underestimate, actually, because it can sometimes be quite costly. Um, so I say as a hard and fast rule, I would try to make 10% of what you think the total sales turnover is going to be. Um, what you think the total turnover is, so your yeah. turnover sales, yeah. yeah. But there's investment that can be in different formats. So there might be something called like fixed investment. So some retailers might make you pay to do some of these things we've talked about. So if you want to go on their website in a special place at the top, they might make you pay for it. Or if you want to be in their newsletter that goes out, they might make you invest into that. Um, but then there's also other investment that is more directly related to the sales. Like So in more of the mass retailers rather than the luxury ones, they will want you to run promotions. So things like Save the Third on All Face Masks, for example. And actually that's quite average. Um, so they, there's a thing called Retro, which is retrospective funding. And they will say, um, for every product that you sold on that Save the Third deal, you need to give a contribution towards the hit that they took on the profit, basically. Um, so those are the things that you kind of they, you take the hit on the profit and you kind of subsidise their hit a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but I guess it should be beneficial for both the retailer and the supplier because if you're putting something onto promotion, the sales should go from here right up to here. So overall, you should both be making a lot more money. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do retailers charge to actually list you? Are there, is, is that something... Some um, but again, I don't want to scare all of the audience with all of these like um, perspective like charges and on all things. It really does depend on the scale of the retailer that you're talking about. But if it is a national retailer that does have quite a few stores, then there will be significant charges involved. So some of those might include a listing fee. Um, I would always say with something like if you get charged a listing fee, so some of them might say it's a thousand pounds per week to go in maybe like a hundred stores or something. Obviously you can work out commercially how beneficial that is to you anyway, you know, what the actual value of the opening order is going to be and kind of offsetting it against that. But you can also try and negotiate with them, obviously in um, in a nice way. Um, and just you know, say well for that investment, you know, we're a small brand. We don't have the capital to just invest into a listing fee that doesn't kind of uh, go towards anything. Would there be anything in return we could secure against it? For example, like a banner on the website, or you know, a slot in your um, top ten face screens, whatever it might be. Yeah. So try and get something in return for it, rather than just being like an outlay of cash for no return. That's great advice. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that's great advice. That's really, really good. Um, okay. 
Shall we go on to the comments? Yeah, I think we've just about answered everything that's come in on the questions. So, coming in from comments, live comments. So, now is your time, ladies. If you've got any questions to ask, we've still got a few minutes left. So, get them um, put here in the comments. Uh, so, Nancy asked, what price point is considered luxury? Where do we make that break? Um, I think the word luxury is quite subjective, um, so it really depends on the category and, and what retailers you're talking to. Um, but I think that probably comes back to the point of knowing which retailers operate within with different price brackets, and then actually pitching yourself to them accordingly. So you know, when I used to work for Superdrug, I said I mentioned that the top ceiling price point in foundation. Base, it was fifteen pounds. So for me, as a buyer, a luxury, a luxury foundation would have been a fifteen pound foundation for my customer. Actually, going to Selfridges, it might be fifty pounds. So I think it's all relative to like the market and the customer that you're talking about. So dig um, is that. If you've got a specific question, just let me know. Yeah, that, that's 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 really interesting because yeah, every. Every different retailer has a form of luxury. Uh, and also, I think in these modern times, I don't think price is the only indicator of luxury. You know, things like um, sustainably sourced and eco packaging and stuff, that is luxury actually, and that's, you know, something that a modern consumer is really interested in. Yeah, and it, but it is, it, everything sort of does come back to the retailer you're working with and the client, you're, you're the end consumer that you're, you're selling to, doesn't it? Which is really yeah. Yeah, going back to the same thing. Um, Steph, I had a great question actually, um, which uh, I'd written down earlier. We talked wonderfully through the fact that everything goes brilliantly. We send the email and the buyer loves it. We get to pitch. We get oh, yeah. What happens <laughs> if that's not the case? So oh, Steph, that, Steph, I hate the, these stories. <laughs> the but don't worry. First of all, do not be disheartened because it happens all the time. And actually, a lot of reasons why a buyer might not reply is probably just because they got distracted and they're really busy. Um, so you should definitely be persistent and kind of persevere. But it's just knowing what the boundary is between persistence and annoyance. Um, I know. I Steph's after because she's written. She's very funny. How many times can, can you keep going back to retailers once you've emailed them? I don't want to be a stalker. But how do you know they're not interested in <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it is annoying if a retailer doesn't give you any feedback if they're not interested. So ideally, if it's a no, they would just send you an email and just say it's no because of this reason. Um, and that might be something that you can work on and then represent to them in a few months' time. Or it might be, okay, great, you're just off the list now. But if they don't reply, it is difficult because ultimately you don't know whether it's because they're not interested or they're just too busy or whatever. So I would say send them an email and kind of wait for an answer maybe wait for two weeks to a month and then send a follow-up email and each time you reach back out to them i kind of leave it longer in between um but i think a real good thing to do in between is whenever you then recontact um a retailer put a new piece of information in so if you've not spoken to them for three months and in between that you've had a great piece of press from the stylist magazine or something you know, put that in, say, okay, buyer, since I last emailed you, um, we've been featured in Silas Magazine, top picks, um, hoping that I can come in and present to you, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and also just check that they haven't moved around categories as well because buyers move a lot. So you might have to do the whole like sending more samples in and stuff. Um, but yeah, just, just be yeah. persistent if you don't get any bad feedback. Oh, they're, they're two, yeah, they're two really, really good tips. Because I think one of the problems is you, it's like you don't know how, it's, it's like you can't face sending that email. Oh, what, have you had a chance to have Hello, a look? it's me again. <laughs> you can say that. Actually give them a reason to look at you again and remind you who, who they yeah. are. And also don't be passive aggressive as well. Don't be like, as per my last email, <laughs> dated the 15th of December. <laughs> yeah, avoid that, avoid that. Um, I think Steph was in the middle of typing something actually, and she hasn't quite finished it off. So uh, I might come um, uh, come back to that in a second. Um, so then we had a question uh, coming from Melissa, which said, "How often do retailers reorder? Is it yeah. whether they need more, or is it set on a set kind of rotation of several times a year?" It's generally based on when they need more. So logically working that back, that's very much linked into the sales performance and how much customers are interested in and therefore buying your products. Um, some retailers might have like a set ordering pattern that they maybe only order once a week or things like that. But generally it is very much linked into how well you're performing. So as we kind of mentioned earlier on in the session, as much as you can um, do to be proactive at driving those sales forward, um, being proactive about having a great relationship with the buying team. Um, because often people like buying assistants, so the assistants that like really support the whole team operating, they might actually share some of that sales information with suppliers. Um, and maybe you could even ask for it to say, some retailers are a bit funny about giving sales information, but they might give you volume information to how many units you've sold rather than like the cash value. Um, you could say, you know, I'm a small brand. I'd really love to understand what volume I'm selling per week to help me better forecast my stock provision. Um, because often, you know, stock is a really difficult thing to manage as well because, you know, it, they might only sell a few units a week or that, you know, it might land with a bang and then you potentially haven't got enough stock, which would be the ideal situation, obviously. Um, so, yeah, try and get the data from them. Um, but generally, it is as a, is on the basis of when they need it. Cool. Excellent. Oh, my God. I, th I, I, do, I do think we've... Um... We've answered everything. And I can't I, believe we've actually got through it on time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite impressed. Oh, Steph's comments just come in, actually. Uh, she said, I've met a buyer. Um, I've met the buyer. Oh, she went, I've, I've, I met a buyer at an, at an event. He said, uh, they said that they love the products. Uh, they've emailed and said they love the products. I've emailed three times now after sending the samples with new info each time. She follows me on Instagram and we comment on each other's posts, but she still hasn't answered any emails. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, um, that is quite unusual. I mean, I'd take the positives out of it, though, that she's interacting with you, she's aware of you. There might be things going on that you're um, not necessarily privy to, so it might be that she doesn't have any space at the moment, but for whatever reason doesn't want to kind of communicate that to you. Um, per se but I'd also say you know the, the beauty industry is very small and it is very incestuous and if you want to have a brand that's going to stick around in the long term even if she's not giving you a yes now it's still worth nurturing those interactions on things like Instagram because in a year's time or in five years time yeah 
You've frozen on me again, Gemma, so I have no idea whether you're still talking or not. <laughs> I'm sure you'll come back to me in a second. Oh, dear. <laughs> that was great. No, and I think it's really interesting because, again, people, what, what retailers want is changing all the time because they're reacting to the trends. That, uh, yeah, and they're trying to stay ahead of the trends as well and create the trends. So sometimes you might not be right for them at that point you emailed them. So yeah. Right for them in six months to 12 months. So yeah. I think if you haven't had a definite no, and people that are interacting with you like that, I think that's really positive because yeah. you've interested them and perhaps it's just. And also, fun. if she's actually replied to say she loves the product and she's still interacting with you on Instagram, you know, there's clearly a positive sentiment there. It's just not necessarily progressed into the next step of, okay, yeah. let's do something about that then. Yeah. So our advice step is keep going, keep interacting. Yeah. Gemma, where can we find you? So for those, for anybody who, who wants to go and seek Gemma out, please tell us where we can find you. And also tell us what you offer to the brands out there, you know, how you work with them. Yeah, so um, you can find me on Instagram. It's probably the best place to find me. I'm there quite a lot. Um, so that's, yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, I'm at Lumi Consultancy, so that's L-U-M-I Consultancy, and my email is Gemma at LumiConsultancy.com. Um, in terms of what I offer, it's really bespoke based on individual brands, so, you know, some brands that I work with might want to scope out their strategy, they might be at the start of their journey, or, you know, I did a lot of work in kind of December and January, working with brands to help them scope out the plan for the year. Um, so it really just depends on what your objectives are, where you are at in the journey and kind of what you need help on. So, yeah, definitely drop me a line if you if you want to reach out. So basically go follow on social and then DM. That's the, and, and then, yeah. Um, so that's awesome. And actually, if you want if you want to meet uh, Gemma and myself, we'll be both be at Incraft. We're, we're going as room buddies. We're roomies. We've rented a rather lovely looking Well, oh, actually, Rachel, maybe we should do a little um, Facebook Live from our apartment. Oh, yeah. If anyone's yeah. interested in that, then definitely drop us a DM. I have had very, I mean, I, this will make everybody laugh. I've had an email from the lady who's renting us the apartment. It's an Airbnb, and she has told me it's in a very quiet neighbourhood. Um, I'm not allowed to make any noise. So I have to behave. <laughs> no, I'm not quite sure whether she thought we were coming to party, but I have explained where we are there on a work conference. So um, so yeah, we'll we uh, in cross, so you can come and see us. And yeah, we'll probably do quite a lot of bits and bobs from there. So uh, so keep your eye out for that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's been so much fun. I can't believe how information packed that is. My brain is overloaded. Um, so thank you to everybody who's joined us live. That is just wonderful. Yeah, um, thanks guys. Everybody who watches this on replay. Um, it stays on the feed forever, so you can uh, you can catch up. Uh, Gemma will be able to post it into her feeds as well, so you'll be able to find it all over the place. Yep. Um, but thank you very, very much. Uh, loads of indie hubs and to you all. We'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye, guys. See ya. The Indie Beauty Delivers community is a place for beautypreneurs across the globe to network, learn, and share. You're invited to join in on Facebook, Instagram and sign up to Rachel's special email group to receive weekly blogs packed full of expert tips. Visit IndieBeautyDelivers.com to sign up.